Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. Why don't you just take a minute? I want you to think about, think about all the advancements in our world that have made your life more convenient. Uh, consider even the behind-the-scenes things that you don't think about on a regular basis, that you don't really give much thought to, but that you know are back there working to make your life better. Con- consider the, the simple idea of, of getting into your car. I, I know that, uh, that when I got in my car this morning to, to come to church, I did not really give much thought to what actually was happening when I pressed the button that started the, uh, started the engine and I put it in drive to pull out of my garage. I didn't think much about what all was taking place when I did that. You may not even fully grasp what all is happening inside your car's engine when you turn that key or, or press that button as the newer cars do. Your car literally runs on a series of controlled explosions of a highly flammable substance. That is what makes your car go. If you took that highly flammable substance that makes your car go, you poured it out on a table, and you dropped a match on what you have done, the likelihood is is that you would be severely injured. Yet in a controlled environment, that small explosion that happens is what makes your car go. That, That same reaction that could cause you so much injury, and I may or may not have uh, had a, uh, a, an injury like that before. Uh, it can be harnessed in such a way that your car is actually able to run. Now, obviously, we didn't get there overnight, right? It wasn't like that one day somebody, you know, Henry Ford or whoever decided, hey, I'm going to, uh, to, to design something that harnesses the combustion of gasoline to, to make an engine. Obviously, that didn't happen overnight. There were hundreds of years of technological innovations and chemistry and engineering that gave us the ability to do something that we, honestly, we take for granted today, just cranking the car and driving to church or school or, or work. You know, prior to, the, uh, prior to the advent of some of these modern ideas, these modern scientific concepts, things were, things were shall we say, just a, a little bit less reasonable. Maybe you've never heard of the, the, um, the idea of alchemy. Alchemy was a, a medieval science that, that merged various ideas from religion and science and, and, uh, and early sorts of chemistry. Alchemists were, many would consider the, the predecessors of modern chemists. But their methods, let's just say their methods wouldn't pass the muster of modern science. Alchemy sought to do some really good things. It sought to find cures for diseases. But alchemy wasn't always about noble results. The holy grail, so to speak, of alchemy was this idea called the philosopher's stone. It was an imaginary concept. It didn't exist, but it was the, the, the goal of alchemists was to find the philosopher's stone. If that sounds familiar to you, that's because uh, it was, that was the original title of J.K. Rowling's first novel, Harry Potter, but it was released in the U.K. as Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. It was released in America, it was released as Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. 
The philosopher's stone was, that, was an idea that, that there was a substance, and some even believe it was a very common substance, that had the capability of, of turning common metals like lead and tin into very uncommon metals like gold and silver. And so alchemists sought to, to find that, that magical substance that would convert all those normal, ordinary metals into something far more precious. But it was even more than that. It wasn't just about economics. Alchemy had a spiritual component to it as well. Alchemists believed that, that an elixir of life could be derived from the philosopher's stone. And alchemy was concerned with the perfection of the human soul. And the philosopher's stone was, was believed to cure illnesses, prolong life, and even bring about spiritual revitalization. And we hear that and we think, that's a, that's a troubling idea. You see, the Middle Ages, they had no problem blurring the lines between philosophy and science and religion, but we probably as Christians today find ourselves repulsed at the idea that there is some sort of substance that could bring about spiritual revitalization. However, a lot of well-meaning alchemists devoted their whole lives to search for such a thing. When you stop and think about it, though, there, there's always been people who devoted themselves to finding some idea or some concept that would change the plight of the human race. As Christians, though, we, we recognize that there's really only one solution to what ails us. And it's not some mysterious substance. It's not some, some mystical idea. The only solution to what truly ails us is not some new philosophical concept. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is really and truly the only thing that brings healing to our ailing souls. Today, our journey through the book of Acts takes us into the heart of the world of philosophy as the Apostle Paul takes on the city of Athens. Now, I understand some of you Georgia Bulldog fans see Athens here and you get excited, but let me assure you that we're not talking about the same thing. So just, I need you to, to, to come out of that realm and into a different realm now. I understand it's been 40-something years before you've been able to really get excited about things, and so I understand that this is triggering, but I just want to go ahead and back you off the cliff just a little bit. So Paul takes on the city of Athens, Greece. Uh, even that G, Athens, Greece, okay? The philosophers that Paul engaged here somehow believed that batting around the latest and greatest ideas and thoughts could lead to some sort of self-realization. But we need to understand that, that true transformation takes more than just thinking about the latest and greatest ideas. It requires taking truth, and putting truth to work in our lives. And what we know to be true about the gospel today was just as true as when Paul went toe-to-toe -to -toe with these first century philosophers. I would invite you to turn your attention to Acts chapter 17 this morning as we consider this. Acts chapter 17, we started that chapter last week, but today we find Paul roaming through the city of Athens. If you've got your place and you're able, please stand with me as we read Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. Dr. Luke tells us this report. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was, was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. 
Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some of them said, what does this babbler say? What's he wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among also were Dionysius, the Areopagites, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Father, I thank you for your word, for the Apostle Paul's defense of the gospel in one of the most hostile environments that he could be in. I pray, Father, that his words to the philosophers might not be lost on us today as we find ourselves in a world that is increasingly day in and day out, more and more hostile to the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, I pray that as we consider these words, Paul's defense today, that it might speak to us and challenge us today to be more than just hearers and thinkers of the gospel, but we would actually be doers. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. If you recall back from the first part of chapter 17, Paul had gone ahead after he left Berea. He went ahead and journeyed to Athens while his companions remained behind. Well, that gave Paul some time to, to roam around, to, to study the, the city of Athens. I, I, it's something I, I, I really could embrace doing. I, I mean, I, I've done this a couple of times in my own life where my travel arrangements have, have given me the opportunity to kind of just explore a, a new city. I, I remember having a few hours in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, after a conference was over and before my flight to come home. And I just had a few hours in downtown Milwaukee, and, and I just kind of explored and looked around. And the only thing that I could come up with after spending time in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, is, man, there's a lot of beer in this town. 
I mean, that was my answer. That was what I was able to ascertain about my time in Milwaukee. Heather and I were able to take a day one time just exploring Nassau in the Bahamas on the back of a little motor scooter thing and just blown away by how old everything was compared to where we live. You know, everything there was two or three hundred years old. It was put there uh, even before our own nation was beginning to be developed and just just blown away just by, by taking time to just consider the community that you're spending time in. And Paul, of course, spends time in Athens, and Dr. Luke wastes no time in telling us that Paul was bothered by what he saw. I imagine that there's places that you could go today where you could spend a few hours and you could just say, you know what, I'm really bothered by what I, I see here. And it's no understatement when Luke said that the city was, was full of idols. There was a Greek historian, a, 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 a traveling geographer who went around and studied various, uh, various cities, and he spent a lot of time in Greece. His name was Pausanias. And Pausanias, in describing Athens, he said this. He said, it was easier to meet a god or goddess on the main street of Athens than to meet a man. If he were from the south, he'd have said, you can't sling a dead cat by the tail and not hit an idol. That's what he would have said here. But he said it's easier to meet a god or a goddess, and statistically that was true because Athens only had a population of about 10,000 people at the time, but there were literally almost 30,000 statues and idols of pagan gods in the city. And so here's the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest thinkers the church has ever produced, the great defender of the faith who's roaming through the city of Athens, and literally everywhere he looked, all he could see were all of these pagan idols. And for Paul, this whole vision was very, very disturbing. But this image of Athens paints something very telling about our human condition, and we need to understand this today. Human beings have an innate hunger for God. I understand that that's probably not a popular conception today in a rapidly secularizing world, but it's true. The Athenians were, were clearly looking for God, but it was also the academic and the philosophical center of the ancient world. It's where if you were an a up-and-coming thinker, it's where you went to study, it's where you went to learn, it's where you went to go sit under your, your favorite philosophical teacher, but in spite of all that they knew and all the ideas that they thought about and all the things that they tossed around, there was still something that they couldn't quite figure out. How to satisfy that innate hunger that was inside of them. You know, it really is something today, you see this, that the closer you get to a university campus, the more unchristian it becomes. Yet the closer you get to that university campus, the smarter people are supposed to be. I mean, that's, that's what you would think. But the smarter they get, the, the, the less interested they are in the things of God. Yet it doesn't change the fact that inside of them there is this innate hunger for God. These Athenian intellectual elite, they, they were trying to satisfy that hunger with anything but faith in the true God. Solomon actually would say later or, or say earlier in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 says he has made everything beautiful in its time also he has put eternity into man's heart each and every single human being made in the image and likeness of God finds within him and her the the implantation of eternity we are all eternity minded as human beings because you think about it what separates us from the animals you know my Poor little dog, he's, he's old as could be, and, and uh, you know, he's not thinking about what, he's not thinking about his last day. He's not thinking about what's going to happen after, you know, as they say with, with, with your pet, after he crosses the rainbow bridge. He's not thinking about that. 
He's thinking about when I'm going to give him his next little CBD treat, the little, little CBD oil treat that calms him down. That's what he's thinking. That's what he's thinking about. He's not thinking about what his life is going to look like when all is said and done. Paul would say in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, he says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools, he says. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The Apostle Paul said, said you guys are the smartest people on the planet. Yet, in spite of how smart you are, you have exchanged the glory of God for these carved images that have no God attached to them whatsoever, in spite of their, their evident quest for truth. It came up short. This hasn't changed. Sociologists tell us that we're living in time when religion is on the decline. They're counting church attendance and saying over and over again that, that religion is on the, on the decline. It doesn't matter if you're evangelical or Catholic or Muslim or Jewish. Religion is on the decline. People are turning away from the church. And statistics are demonstrating that to be true, but the reality hasn't changed that people still have an innate hunger for God, even when they turn their attention elsewhere. In Athens, they satisfied that hunger through gross idolatry and the pursuit of these, these ideas and these philosophical concepts. Our civilization today looks to satisfy that hunger not through idols carved from stone, but through the pursuit of pleasure and leisure and sport and all those other kinds of substitutes that we have in our lives today. People in this world move through life trying to satisfy this deep longing with things that are ultimately incredibly temporary. I had alluded to Ecclesiastes earlier. If you read Ecclesiastes, it's, it's not an encouraging book. It's not one that, uh, that you want to read if you're, if you're feeling blue. Uh, you know, I would, uh, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe go there when you're feeling good about life and, and to, to kind of keep you, keep you balanced. But in the book of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon actually reflects on his life's attempt to satisfy himself with all of these other replacements. In chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, he says he tried to pursue pleasure. And he had all the resources to do it. He was the, he was the richest man. I mean, he was, he was the uh, Elon Musk of his day. He was the smartest and richest man around. So he had all the resources available to pursue whatever kind of pleasure he wanted to pursue. And Solomon's conclusion after he pursued pleasure was what? Vanity. Vanity he even uses the term chasing after the wind. Well, that's a futile effort, right? Chasing after the wind. Where he says he pursued possessions, tried to get all the stuff he could get, and found that to be vanity. He says he pursued work and found nothing but vanity. His conclusion after spending so much time chasing down all of these other things was to simply come to this conclusion. He says in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, the end of the matter, after all has been heard, fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. In other words, there are no other pursuits, no other ideas, no other causes more noble, no other place to look to satisfy that longing that resides within us than the Lord God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, 
who has made himself known to us through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That, ladies and gentlemen, is where our satisfaction is found. So recognizing the spiritual deficiencies of this community, the Apostle Paul says, well, let's go to work. So Luke tells us he starts teaching and preaching. He goes to the synagogues and and these, these communities where there was some friendly faces. He starts making the case for Christ in what is a very unchristian community. And he, he makes some inroads with the Jews and with the God-fearing Greeks. But Paul also took his message, we're told, to the marketplace. And it was in the marketplace where he encountered some of these philosophical types. He took his message into the public square. We recognize this today that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is actually becoming less and less tolerated today. But I think we need to keep this in mind. The gospel still belongs in the marketplace. The gospel still very much belongs in the marketplace. It's not something that's only meant for our worship centers. It's something that very much belongs in the marketplace. And we are living in a day and time where people are increasingly requiring that the gospel be kept out of the public arena. It doesn't belong in the school. It doesn't belong in the workplace. It doesn't belong in the government building. It doesn't belong in the streets. It doesn't have a place in those arenas. I'll say this, at least Athens allowed the dialogue. At least Athens allowed them to come together and discuss these things. At least Athens had a venue where they could come together and and carry out these debates. And we're told that, that Paul was carrying on regular, frequent conversations with this different group of philosophers. Today's culture doesn't want to hear the debate. If it doesn't like what you have to say, if it doesn't like the gospel that you preach... No, they simply cancel you, deplatform you, take your voice away. Have you noticed increasingly how politicians in our own nation refer to the freedom of worship rather than the freedom of religion? I don't think that's a mistake. I think that's very intentional because worship is something that happens in a space at a time. Religion is something that you carry with you through your whole life. And so instead of having the freedom to carry whatever religion you have to wherever you go to work, instead, let's isolate it and and keep it narrow in the worship place, in the church, in the synagogue, in the mosque. We don't want it to go beyond those places. We've seen over the last two years, COVID-19 lockdowns and shutdowns were frequently targeted at the church. We in our own country have seen where casinos have been free to carry on about their business, but churches, churches have not been allowed together. We've seen this over and over again. I'm sure it's only a matter of time before platforms like YouTube and Facebook stop allowing churches to have access to their services to post content. They may not even be aware of what's going on. Right now we're on YouTube. YouTube is streaming live and I'm criticizing them right now on their own service, on their own platform. I'm sure it's just a matter of time before that is taken away. In fact, we live in a day and time where really society simply wants to silence anything that offers competing ideas to whatever the issue of the day might be. Paul wasn't trying to silence these philosophers. He wasn't trying to deplatform them. He wasn't trying to take away their voice. Paul embraced the debate. He embraced the opportunity to allow him to make his case, to allow them to make their case. He was simply making that case, and then he was letting the hearers decide which one passed the test. 
That's still true today. I really do believe this. I believe that the gospel stands up against every competing idea that exists today. Now, you believe that? I mean, you let me have an opportunity to defend the gospel and, and share the clear gospel message against a, a, a pagan philosopher, a Muslim cleric, a, a, a Jewish rabbi. The gospel message stands up perfectly well against them all. The gospel message stands up perfectly well against secular influences. It still stands true. Today's marketplace looks a lot different. Today's marketplace is not the shopping mall or the farmer's market. Today's marketplace is our social media platforms and the places where we go to work. And instead of allowing ideas to be scrutinized and and debated, the rulers of today's marketplaces simply choose to silence the debate. At least Athens here is a model of allowing these competing ideas to be be aired in the public square. Now, Paul's critics in Athens didn't like what he had to say, but they didn't punish him. They, in fact, some asked to hear him more. They weren't altogether friendly towards him. They even mocked him a little bit. They called him a babbler. Even though Luke pointed out in verse 21 that these folks did nothing but talk about ideas. So who was the babbler in the story? Some of them were confused. Verse 18 says that they thought that Paul was advocating foreign gods. You say, how in the world did Paul's message get confused as some sort of some sort of, of, of two-God system? And the reality is it's a simple misunderstanding. Greek is like Spanish in the sense that the, the words have masculine and feminine cases. And so there are, just like, just like the Spanish language and those other Romance languages, and so resurrection is a feminine noun. That word's actually Anastasia, so if you know anybody named Anastasia, that, that is Greek for resurrection. Anastasia is a feminine noun, and so when Paul stands up and he preaches about Jesus, which is a masculine noun, and Anastasia, the resurrection, these philosophers heard that and said, oh, he's talking about Jesus and his girlfriend. They misunderstood. They didn't, they didn't comprehend what Paul's message was. These smart people couldn't gather what Paul was saying. Yet in spite of this, they gave him quite a stage to make the case. I dare say that what happens in Acts chapter 17 is the biggest stage that the gospel had been presented in through the whole 17 chapters of Acts that we've looked at. No other place has had this level of influence, this level of impact. And so Paul took advantage of it and made his case. This should be the model that we have today. Instead, what we see happening is our culture, our civilization, the power brokers in our world just cancel anyone who points out the fact that Jesus is a better pathway in life than all the other pathways that exist today. And so it is our job as the church to make known that which is unknown. As Paul is given the opportunity to speak to these philosophers, he is about to unravel their view of the world with a simple observation. Out of all the idols that Paul saw, there was one that got his attention, which which is really remarkable when you stop and think about that there were 30,000 different idols for him to observe, and he managed to find the one that was the catch-all idol. They put it there in case they missed one, right? 
They said, we're going to have God's, we're going to have little idols and, and little, little worship places for all of these different deities, but just in case we miss any, let's put this idol here, let's put this altar, let's put this place of worship to the unknown God. And Paul says, you're not as smart as you think you are. You see, these Athenians didn't want the gods to come to town and the one god to show up that didn't have an idol was the one god they didn't know about. So just to make sure that they didn't get judged incorrectly, they put this monument there. Yet in all of the idols, they had nothing that acknowledged the one true God. And so Paul pointed out the fact that there was this one altar that he saw, one altar to, a one, to an unknown God that was the one place where their attention should fully rest. Can you imagine how crushing that was? Their whole world had been built around all of these different deities, all these different little g-gods. Their whole religious system was focused on these 29,999 other gods. And Paul says, let me show you the one that you should really be paying attention to. I call this the true philosopher's stone because it was on this stone monument that the worldview of these Brilliant people came crashing down. Acts chapter 17, verse 24, Paul says this. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. In one simple sentence, Paul looks at their entire worldview and says, you've been focused on the wrong thing your whole life. And over the course of the next few verses, Paul systematically dismantles their pagan religion. He even quotes their own scholars against them. Verse 28 are actually quotes from, from these Greek scholars. From, one is from a guy named Epimenides. The other is from a, a, a scholar named Eratus. He quotes their own scholars, which, man, Paul's smart as a whip. Now, he didn't have time to prepare he stands up and he's preaching to these, these, these Stoics and these Epicureans and he's quoting Greek philosophers to these guys. Don't ever think Paul's not a smart guy. Paul wasn't ignorant of what these people believed. He knew who they were and how they thought. He would later tell the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, he said, For the weapons of our warfare, not the, of the flesh, but have the divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Paul says the gospel dismantles all these other thoughts, all these other systems, all these other views of the world. The gospel stands supreme. The gospel has the power to overcome bad ideas and empty arguments because the gospel gets to the heart of the whole that lurks inside every single human heart the chief question these philosophers sought to answer was was who are we and who is god that was the question that's that's what all of their systems were trying to answer who who are we and who is god and in the matter of a 15 minute speech paul points them in the right direction to point them in the direction of the light of who the true god is and here's the thing, the true gospel always demands a response. The 
True gospel always demands a response. You can't hear the gospel and not respond to it because the gospel does something profound. It exposes your weakness. It exposes your flaws. It exposes your mistakes. And then it provides a solution to all that. It's, it's like you getting pulled over by the police officer and the police officer saying, hey, you know what you were doing? Well, no, not really. You were speeding. You had your problem exposed. And the police officer says, you want to fix this and not do it again? Yes, officer, I don't ever want to do it again. At that moment, you don't step on the gas and, and throw rocks all over the police cruiser. You solve the problem in that moment. The gospel does this. The gospel exposes our mistake, exposes our flaws, and gives us a response. It's too important to disregard. The gospel demands a response. In Acts chapter 17, verse 30, Paul says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. What do you do with the gospel? You repent. Why? Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, the Lord Jesus Christ. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. I know it, buddy. I love that in this arena, the Apostle Paul isn't afraid to ask people to make a decision. Because in this moment, it would be easy to say, let's talk about this some more. Let's, let's, let's meet again and, 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 and have our questions answered. But Paul finishes his, his word here, and he says, and everybody must repent, because that's what the gospel demands, that we repent. Repent from what? Your gross idolatry? Your suppression of the truth? These philosophers had different ideas about how their existence would come to an end. The Epicureans he was arguing with believed that they were simply moving towards extinction. The Stoics believed that they were moving towards being absorbed into the cosmos. That sounds encouraging, right? But the truth is, Paul said, mankind is moving towards a judgment. And there is a solution to this looming crisis because judgment has already been paid for those who would receive it. This call to response that Paul gives was a little more than the philosophers could handle. They were fine with the exchange of ideas, right? It's okay to talk about this. It's okay to have a debate. It's okay to have a conversation. It's, it's fine as long as it's theoretical. Oh, but listen, the gospel's not theoretical. The gospel is practical. The gospel demands action. The conclusion then was the same as it is today. <laughs> the conclusion for these folks was, listen, Paul, it's fine to be a Christian as long as you don't take it too seriously. Man, isn't that true today? It's fine to be a Christian. It's fine to do the church thing. It's fine to do all that stuff, as long as you don't take it too seriously. Because that's what these guys wanted. They didn't want Paul to call them to response. They just wanted to talk about it. But listen, that's how it is today. It's okay to be a Christian, as long as you don't allow it to affect how you see the world or how you see your neighbor. It's okay to be a Christian businessman as, as long as your Christian business practices don't cramp my style. Talk to the people who own Hobby Lobby or Chick-fil-A or these other corporations that, are, try, that try to run their business in, uh, along with Christian principles. And they find themselves in court over and over and over again having to defend their practices. 
It's fine to be a Christian artist as long as you're willing to suppress your Christian faith when my perversion requires it. You can be a Christian artist, but, but don't tell me no, that you won't serve my worldview or my perversion. It's fine to be a Christian politician as long as you don't allow your outdated, misogynistic, bigoted views of sexual ethics to inform or influence how you vote or legislate. It's fine. Just don't allow it to influence how you vote. The problem with all this is that the gospel requires all of us. There's no room for half-hearted allegiance. The gospel is all or nothing. It's not a mind exercise. It's not positive thinking. The gospel demands our entire selves. The gospel wants all of us. And saving faith in Jesus leads to measurable fruit. Ideas lead to actions. Which leads us to a very simple question. Is your Christian faith a simple intellectual exercise or does it impact your life and the lives you touch every single day? Saving faith in Jesus is more than just a thought process. It's more than just a pattern in our lives of go to church on Sunday, put my check in the offering plate. It's more than that. It touches every single aspect of who we are, from how we work, from how we serve our families and our, and our marriages. It affects everything, not just partially, but wholly. So for you today, is it just intellectual, or does it touch everything about you? That's a question you can only answer today, but God the Holy Spirit is more than ready to help you come to the right conclusion. I would invite you to join me in prayer right now. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the Apostle Paul and his courage to stand in what had to be one of the most intimidating arenas that any Christian had ever stood. To stand in front of these men who were the smartest men in the world. Yet in spite of their intelligence, missed the truth of the gospel, missed the reality of the creator God of the universe. Lord, we recognize today we live in a world that people still have a hunger for God, yet they seek to satisfy that hunger in so many different ways. And as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, God, we understand that it is our job to make sure that people understand that it is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that is the only thing that will satisfy that hunger within it's not in drink, it's not in passion, it's not in recreation, it's not in pursuits, it is in the gospel. And so, Lord, as we look around at a world that is growing more secular every day, as a world today that is riddled with violence and war and plague, there's no other hope apart from Jesus. And you've empowered us as your people to be messengers of that good news. May we be faithful to carry it where their people are hurting, May we be faithful to share it where people are deceived by other things. May we call people to response, to repent from idolatry and sin and turn to follow Jesus. I thank you for that address in Athens. It's so powerful and so pertinent to us today. May our faith be more than just a mind exercise but may it challenge us and transform us and grow us and guide us every single day of our lives. I pray these things in Jesus' name.
Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.